I think that the book is an attempt to understand, hey, like as a liberal person, you think that these are the problems. So I'm going to speak to you in a way that resonates with you. But really underneath it is this more underlying systemic problem. And if we can imagine changing that, how might the world change? If you care about the environment, you should be caring about how that energy is produced. And the key message is that Bitcoin is a tool that allows the energy that is being generated at the site of generation to be more green and more efficient, more sustainable. All of the things that the people on the left really want, Bitcoin allows that to happen. And of course, the argument is throughout the whole book that these are all the benefits of Bitcoin. It sounds to me that you're not a progressive at all, but it's like a Trojan horse for progressives. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. Today, our guest is Jason Meyer, educator, lifelong progressive, and author of the soon-to-be-released book, The Progressive Case for Bitcoin. Join us as we discuss Jason's book, its premise, and its goals as we explore mathematics, praxeology, and politics. We'll take a deep dive into the environmental argument for Bitcoin, property rights, and the fragility of society and civilization. Before we dive in, just a reminder that the best way you can support the show is to stream us some sats or send us a boost on a value-for-value value podcasting app like Fountain or Breeze. And if you're on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode, subscribe to the channel, and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors, Orange Pill App, Wasabi Wallet, and Consensus Network. All their information is in the description, and we'll be talking a little more about them later. And so, without further ado, here is Jason Meyer on the Freedom Footprint Show. Jason Meyer, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. Happy to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thanks. I think just to start things off, you've got a book coming out shortly here, Progressive Case for Bitcoin, which mm -hmm. I'm personally quite excited about. I've got people who I specifically have told about this and who are interested in it. And so can you just to start things off, tell us a little bit about yourself and into the book if we get in, into that? Uh, yeah, so um, I think that the brief introduction of me is that I'm uh, I'm a high school math teacher. That's my day fiat mining job. That's a job I wanted since I was, you know, in eighth grade. So, you know, I said, sometimes I mention, oh, I'm living the dream because I get to teach math, you know, at this level and, and engage with that stuff every day. And people think I'm joking, but it really is. It's like, I, I love teaching math. I love being an educator and teaching. And, you know, I got into Bitcoin a, a few years ago and, and, sort of got a conviction about the technology through that sort of mathematical computer science lens and started appreciating it at that level. And then as I wanted to learn more, I was just realizing that um, a lot of a lot of the resources that I saw out there, uh, not all, but but many of them just didn't resonate with me on, on a political level. I'm a uh, lifelong sort of progressive liberal person and um, I realized that if I wanted to get my progressive and liberal friends into Bitcoin, I was going to need to give them something that would resonate with them. 
And I, you know, I set out to write the book. So, uh, that's, that was the project. You know, I, you know, you, you say, oh, I'm going to write a book. And then you think, well, yeah, you said that, but you're not going to actually do it, but I actually did it and it will be coming out, um, this spring. So be available for, for purchase. And like you mentioned, there's a lot of people that you want to buy it or you told about it. Um, I find it's about 50, 50 people who are excited about this book because they consider themselves a Bitcoiner and they're more progressive than maybe the typical Bitcoiner. Um, and then there's also like a, a bunch of people who are like, well, I, I don't agree with you politically, but I want to get this book because I know my sister-in-law or my coworker or my neighbor would really resonate with, with the material in it. So um, it's been sort of a 50-50 mix between the different constituencies that might be uh, excited about the book. So, Cool. Um, I, I mean, that, that, I view that as one of the great hurdles to to bitcoin adoption is how do we how do we sell it to left-wingers basically uh yeah and it's it's hard but i think that like since there's so much misinformation especially the environmental part i think that's a, a huge selling point if we can explain bitcoin as it is and how it's extremely good for the environment and like the only way to to stop to stop this wasteful behavior is to stop overconsumption we have to start with fixing the money before we can fix the world so so uh, yeah what, what what's your what's your big like angle to, <laughs> to 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 sell bitcoin to to progressives um i mean so it i mean there's there's a couple of different answers to that i think that, that i constructed the book as sort of um here's the here's the greatest hits list of of arguments that i've made with people that i care about and who are progressive that that has resonated and I just set out, like when I started writing the book, I'm going to just make a list of chapters that make sense, right? Here, here are the things. And not every argument works with every person, right? So you have to know who you're talking to and what do they care about and how do they view the world and, you know, what are sort of the unfairnesses and injustices that they, that are going to resonate with them and how does Bitcoin uh, address those things? So the book is essentially sort of like greatest hits mix, right? Like sometimes it's the environmental piece that, you know, if the, if the people who have heard misinformation, usually from a liberal politician, uh, and they believe it, then sort of, you know, disabusing them of that misinformation is, is critically important. Um, but for other people, it's like, all right, well, this is going to be an opportunity for oppressed people all around the world who live in authoritarian regimes. Like that resonates with the people in a different way. So I think that, um, you know, the table of contents is essentially sort of the path through and I think, you know, there's, there's also a piece of it where like the book is written with a progressive reader in mind, somebody who's a liberal person who votes for, you know, like the, the person on the left who most aligns with them. But there's a lot of overlap. It's not as if the things that I say in the book, like some of them are just worded in a way that is just more welcoming to progressive people to think through their issues and their problems and how they see the world. Um, in just a more inviting way. So they're more inclined to say, oh, th well, this is something worth learning more about. Maybe the information I've gotten prior to this is not accurate. But it's not, it's not as if I'm coming to Bitcoin from a completely opposite viewpoint from a libertarian or a conservative person, right? Like it's almost like I'm able to find the places where there's overlap in the message and then sort of uh, rectify some misinformation. And that's, and, and then use language that I think that I know, or I think will resonate with people on the left side of the political spectrum to, to get my 
points across and to help them learn better. So, oh, I have so many, uh, just bubbling with questions here. And uh, uh, I, I need to know where, where you stand on like, because to me, you said you've always wanted to be a maths teacher and now you're a maths teacher. And I, I yes. love that because math uh, is what, one of my favorite sciences. Uh, it was in school and it still is. And mainly I've realized during the years that it's mainly because math is an a priori science and not an a posteriori science, which means that it's not based on empirical evidence, but it starts from a set of axioms. And yeah. arguing against these axioms, you inevitably run into logical inconsistencies. So you can't argue against two plus two equals four and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm, uh, but the, the, the big thing Bitcoin gave to me was the science of praxeology, which is to the subjective, what maths is to the objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, it's an a priori science that starts from a, a uh, about human action that starts from a a set of axioms that that you can't argue against without running into logical inconsistencies. For instance, that uh, the fact that you own your own body. Um, uh, if you argue against that, you prove that you own your body by you know <laughs> arguing. You own your vocal cords and your tongue. So, so I'm curious. Have you have you read any praxeology? Have have you done a, a deep dive into that rabbit hole at all? I, no, the answer is no, I haven't. Um, I mean, it, it's, I, I don't think that there's, I mean, based on the description, I'm not sure that I have uh, any refutation to it either. I haven't studied it. Um, I think my, I mean, my love for mathematics specifically came from essentially, you know, what you were saying, right? Like the, my view is, uh, all right, well, here's some objective truths out there. And if we start from these axioms, then we can prove these things. And it's, and, um, you know, things get very interesting when you change the axioms and see how the mathematics changes, right? When you deal with, um, you know, not just arithmetic and two plus two is four, but you deal with some of the higher level, you know, graduate level, research level mathematics. Yeah. Um, the number I, for instance, the, the square root yeah. of minus one is, is one sort of such, like you introduce this new axiom and all of a sudden you can figure out other stuff. Right. And, uh, you know, in my, and it, it's interesting because then you, then you essentially have this, this interplay between the pure mathematics, which is just, uh, you know, understanding what happens from these axioms. And then you have this, this bridge between the applied mathematics. Well, what do we see happening in the world and how do we make sure that the bridges don't collapse and the skyscrapers don't tip over and, you know, all of that stuff. Right. And if we can, what happens with the things like the number I or with fractals or with like, you know, uh, abstract, uh, algebra and group theory is um, these things are mathematical concepts that are invented purely as, as, as pure mathematics, right? There's no application intended at all. And then years, maybe even centuries later, there's all of a sudden there's application. Right? There's some chemist in a lab somewhere that can actually use I uh, to create something that, you know, is needed or something like that. So um, I always found that fascinating that you have this, um, this interplay between sort of the pure and, and then the applied. And they, they could be separated by by many, many years, right? Like <laughs> decades or centuries, it, you know, same thing is true with, you know, if you think about the, the analog to um, Bitcoin and computer science, right? Like Bitcoin is built on a lot of things that were developed, you know, by computer scientists just to solve interesting problems or to explore things. And then somebody was able to put them all together, you know, in some cases, many, many years after they were discovered or first thought about. So 
Um, you know, in terms of the praxeology, I'm not an expert. I would have happy, happy to talk to you about it if you want to explain more uh, uh, <laughs> more about it. Yeah, I, I I can definitely recommend doing a, a deep dive into that because, like anyone who's interested in mathematics, in the way you seem to be, uh, should be interested in praxeology because it basically, in the end, it sort of refutes all the social sciences <laughs> because it says <laughs> it's it's not a science if right. it involves human action because. If you can deduct, like if you if you can study humans as groups, then you sort of you have to remove agency and free will from the equation. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like yeah. I love the Hitchens quote there. Uh, of course, I have free will. I have no choice but to have it. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, if if we're going to ever study human action, we need to presuppose that we have free will, uh, which is debatable, but. But sure, still, sure. Uh, and it sort of, it sort of uh, illuminates how much better voluntary interactions are for everyone in society than involuntary ones. So, uh, and that's why yeah. people find it right wing. And so, and you said conservative or libertarian before, and I think there's a very, very, very big distinction between the two. Uh, I, I don't really like. Let's get the semantics out of the way. I, I prefer yeah. to call myself a consensualist. Because okay. like even voluntarist is wrong because uh, you can po point a gun at me and said give me your money I can voluntarily give it to you but it's yeah, not yeah, with yeah. consent so so I think like every every vector that points to more and more consensual interactions between people and fewer and fewer non-consensual ones is good and that's basically where praxeology will inevitably lead you because okay. you will run into uh, logical inconsistencies in trying to argue against that. Yeah. Well, not, yeah. It, uh, sounds, it sounds fascinating and certainly yeah. have a lot to learn about it. So I'm, yeah, I, uh, no. I can definitely recommend it because it, it doesn't turn you into one or the other side politically, but it sort of gives you a lens to view what all politics is through. And you can sort of like separate that from, okay, at, at the end of all of this, uh, taxes and inflation and stuff, there's always the barrel of a gun and the threat of violence if you don't do as some other person tells what some other person tells you to do, basically. Right, right, uh, right. So regardless of popularity contests or what. So you but let's get let's get back to you and your book. The the the, <laughs> the thing yeah, uh, I'm I'm ahead of myself there. But uh, what I want to pick your brain about was you, sure. you said uh, one of the arguments in the book were about uh, how it, Bitcoin is a tool for people in authoritarian states. Mm -hmm. And I guess you mean like places like Venezuela or, or uh, Zimbabwe or, or somewhere where it's hyperinflating and it's a really shitty place for, for people to be or Lebanon or whatever. Uh, okay, yeah. Right. Uh, where do you draw, personally draw the line between an authoritarian state and just a state? Where, where, right. Where do you draw the line? <laughs> that's a that's a great question, and I think that the line for the book and the line, you know, like a lot of what a lot of what I do is sort of through the lens of yeah, I'm a lifelong educator, and I want to I want to teach people sort of the benefits of Bitcoin in in a way that maybe they haven't been exposed to already. In order to do that, I need to understand sort of who the audience is and where they're coming from. What's what are their priors? And where are they sort of emotionally, right? And so if I start a book 
saying, well, um, all states are just authoritarian and, you know, like there is no line, you know, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to accomplish the goal that I'm setting out to do. Right. So it's, it's going to definitely not. That's, that's why I'm interested in where you draw that line. (laughs) And and so in the book, I think that there is, it's an interest, like I make, I try to make an interesting point, which is to say, look at all of these examples that somebody who's sitting very comfortably in the United States who has, you know, U.S. dollar is what they were born into and they have in their mind some sort of reasonable rule of law and um like there's property rights and there's protections and there's all these things look at all these other places and and those things aren't happening and when somebody protests their government they get you know sort of locked out of their bank account and their funds get stolen and all of that stuff which typically does not happen to Americans or people in sort of Western liberal democracies. I mean, of course, we know exceptions, but typically doesn't. Um, and then I and then I invite the reader to explore like, well, what happens if if things change in the spot you're in or things slide a little bit? It doesn't have to be a flip, right? But it could be a flip in their mind. In the reader's mind, it could be a flip. All of a sudden, they're on the wrong side of history. Their bank account is getting frozen. The wrong person gets elected. Or somebody else is using this state in ways that they're not familiar with, right? Most people around the world are they're used to the government uh, seizing their funds or censoring their speech or, or doing all of these things that we, you know, most Americans would, would think are, um, you know, just not options. But it doesn't to say, you know, that we're not. It doesn't mean that we're immune to it. And I think that I do invite the reader to explore. Like you might not think Bitcoin is important for you in this moment, um, apart from maybe some just investment vehicle. Um, but it's really important for you to actually think about it in a broader sense and that, and the applications and the importance of things like it being distributed and decentralized and permissionless and censorship resistant. Like that's all very important right now for lots of other people, but it's also important for you too. So I, I do think that I think I get the, the leadingness of the question. Like, how do you define the line between an authoritarian state and just a state? Like, I get that. Um, but I, I think that if I come at it from the perspective of somebody who's trying to educate a, a pre-coiner, somebody who I want who I want to get into Bitcoin and understand it better, I can't draw that line in a very bright way. If that makes sense, and I and I, and I don't. I, I do. I do think that there's real tangible differences to, between the quality of life that I enjoy as an American and the and the way that my government interacts with me compared to to most people, right? To over 50% of the rest of the world. I think there are actual tangible differences in my relationship to my government uh, than most people have, which I, you know, probably is not very, you know, popular with the people listening right now. But I think it's, you know, like I, you know, I I, I do want to acknowledge that there's a distinction there. How, how much of that American privilege yeah. uh, do you do you attribute to or assign to the fact that there's a Federal Reserve who can basically print oil by pressing a button. Yeah, and s- steal, steal oil from other countries by, by, by printing more money. I mean, that's, that's where most of your riches come from, I would argue. Uh, um, and, and I do the same, right? And, and I think that uh, in the book, I do the same. I just sent out a tweet <laughs> the other day that was essentially made the same point, right? Like we, uh, you know, how much of Americans' global dominance over the last 50 years is a result of us being able to turn debt into an asset where the rest of the, you know, poorer countries are, are burdened with debt as a liability. And I think that the, my target audience is all 
is going to be all in on the idea that like if you have somebody who's able to game the rules and to make their situation better in an unfair way, which is exactly what you're saying with the Federal Reserve and the Central Bank of the United States government, that that doesn't that does not resonate with people like that doesn't feel right. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and confusion about how the Federal Reserve works and how monetary policy in the United States is decided and what effect it has on Americans and what effect it has on the rest of the world. Like that's very poorly understood in the circles that I would run in that aren't Bitcoin circles, right? My liberal friends and, and progressive people would be willing to hear all of that through a certain viewpoint or lens, but they just, they're not exposed to it. Um, and so the, in part, the hope behind the book is to understand like, hey, the, you know, even if you're an American, like you're, you have to understand your place in the world right now is a function of all of these other things. And it might not be 100% central bank monetary policy, but I think it's, it's a vast majority <laughs> is attributable to, to that. And I think that, um, you know, that's an important thing, an important thing to understand. And then also an important thing to to understand that it's just not fair. And if you actually care about these things and you want a more fair, equitable, uh, transparent system, uh, which is what Bitcoin, in my mind, that's what Bitcoin offers. Yeah, uh, I, I think the <laughs> what, what separates the left-wingers from right-wingers is the, what they put the blame on. Like left-wingers put the blame on big corporations and right-wingers put the blame on big government. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it, in my mind... It's just two aspects of the same phenomena. Like, and you wouldn't get these large corporations with uh, monopoly positions if they weren't able to get cheaper loans because they were closer to the monetary spigot. They would never be able to, to be as big as they are without that mechanism in place first. Right. So yeah. uh, when you say Bitcoin is transparent, that's, that's interesting because we know Bitcoin no. is pseudonymous. Pseudonymous? Yes. What, what's the word? Pseudonymous? 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 Yeah. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. And uh, there are more and more tools for privacy coming, like Wasabi yeah. wallets and coin joints, uh, for instance. Yeah. So what's your view there? Should, should Should money be transparent or not? Yeah. So when... When I say transparent, and and I actually, I tr I try to make this argument in the book as clearly as possible. There are many things in which the government does, and, and of course, I'm, you know, just to be very clear with your your listeners, like I I write the book, and I'm very clear about this from a perspective of, as an American, because that's you know it's authentic to me, and that's what I understand. Um, but there's many there's many aspects to the relationship that I have with my government or the actions that the government does that's obfuscated by the, their ability to print money. And so what they spend money on and what the tax rate is and how those decisions get made is all sort of behind a curtain because of, and most people want to think about it this way, but it is actually is hidden because of the money printing ability. And, you know, like you're saying before, they can print money to buy oil and print money to do these like very, yeah, in my mind, very well-intentioned social programs, or they can print money to go to war. All of that gets stripped away from the government's ability to, if we're using some sort of Bitcoin standard or, or some sort of monetary technology that's backed or pegged to Bitcoin. Like the government's ability to do many of those things gets stripped away. And so when I say transparent, it, it's an aspiration to say, all right, the, the actions and decisions and the ability of my government to do X, Y, or Z 
it needs to be more transparent to sort of an engaged populace. So you're going to say, all right, we want us, we want to go to war for this reason, and this is how much it's going to cost, and this is how much we're going to tax you to do it. Or uh, we don't want to go to war. What we want to do is make sure that you know everybody has healthcare or whatever the case is. There's some sort of more transparency to that interaction. The the monetary tool itself of transparency, I think. You know, I, I think that we need a monetary technology where two people can interact with each other in, in a way that's hidden from everyone else or hit like in a, in a private way. Um, so you can selectively decide who knows what you're spending the money on it and why. So I think on the base layer, what you're saying, these tools about coin join and, and, um, making sure privacy is important. I, I feel like that's an important aspect of Bitcoin and sort of an aspiration for Bitcoin that we're working towards and the tools are getting better. That's important. When I say transparent, I mean sort of the role money has in politics and the role politics has in money should be more transparent. Okay, here here comes the deep uh, philosophical stretching out the thought vector far into the future type of question. How do you extract taxes at all on a Bitcoin standard post-hyper-Bitcoinization? Everyone in the world uses Bitcoin. All the jo- all the coins are coin joined or on the Lightning Network, uh, basically untraceable. H- how do you tax the population at all in a scenario like that? Yeah. So, um, so I guess uh, you know before I answer, I can just say maybe clarify like my vision, right? Which is of, of like long long term, right? Because <laughs> I don't think that the the book necessarily addresses like what's happening in the in the long term post hyper Bitcoinization. In fact, it's a, it's almost like a tool to help get us there because without without forty percent of the population, we might you know it's going to be more difficult to get there. So um, I, I think that or some <laughs> well, it's still a personal thing. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, so I, I guess you know the the caricature that as like a liberal person, I'm going to like be wedded to like some large state that needs to tax me and and uh, make decisions about my life is uh, easy to argue against. But I don't think that that's, there, there are values that I have um, that sort of transcend, you know, that I consider progressive or liberal values that transcend that sort of version of the state. And, and I recognize that sort of the nation state in its current form is, is not, uh, doesn't have a long track record. It's only a couple hundred years old, 500 years old, right? So, so I think that, what happens in the long, long term might look very much different than what happens in the in the medium and short term in terms of how people are assembled and how groups are formed and where people live and what jurisdictions there are, if there are. Um, that could look co- totally different, and and that none of that uh, affects sort of the the foundational like progressive liberal feelings that I have. But in in the medium term, I think that. It's not necessarily easy for the as easy for the government to extract taxes from people who don't want to pay them, um, except like my taxes right now are taken out of uh, you know my employer has a relationship with the government and takes money out of my paycheck before they give it to me. They give it to the government, and we can argue whether or not that's you know they should be doing that or that's right or wrong or you know what that relationship really constitutes. Um, but as a matter of like just logistics, like how do it how do they get their hands on the money? I think that that like there's ways to do that in a Bitcoin standard. If my paycheck is coming to me, or like my labor is being exchanged for value in the form of Bitcoin, um, and there's you know a government involved in that and a company involved in that, 
there isn't always a company, but then there, there's ways for that to happen. But, you know, I'm not sure what that looks like exactly. I think that, you know, in the, in the short, medium term, it probably looks an, anal- analogous to what we have now. But in the long term, it's, it's clearly going to look much different. And I don't know, I can't hypothesize about it too deeply. No, no. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to predict the future so far ahead. Uh, like the, I view the medium, medium to short term as that there will be more competition between states in providing mm-hmm. more or more Bitcoin friendly environments. Like yeah, yeah. we can see it already. People are choosing to move to crappy old El Salvador instead of <laughs> staying in the yeah. US. Like, and it, who, sure. who would have guessed that 10 years ago or even five years ago? No, right. yeah. no, yeah. One. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's already doing that, but you said you had some values that were progressive and liberal. What are those exactly? What, what, um, that they weren't, weren't necessarily tied to taxes. So what are those? <laughs> um, I, I think that, um, you know, the, I, I do value the idea of, I mean, and, and, and anybody would agree with this, I think, um, respecting individuals and respecting communities in which you live or in which you participate. Um, and I think that what, what I often see in, you know, like it's essentially like, uh, so one of those examples, right. Respecting individuals, respecting the community and the groups that you live in is, is is like protection for the rights of, of minority members within a community or people who don't necessarily fit the status quo or people who might be disadvantaged or, um, uh, otherwise marginalized within a community, within, uh, you know, a jurisdiction within, uh, you know, however you want to define those things. Like those, those things are important to me. Um, and I think that that right now, uh, one of the, one of the ways in which that, that manifests is through, through a government that is purported to or theoretically is supposed to represent the will of its citizens and and of course like you know there's debate about how well that's happening or if it's happening um but i don't think that that necessarily it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way in the future either right like it doesn't have to be the government that steps in to say all right here's how you play fair um but i think that so far there hasn't been um solutions that that resonate with me or that i would believe in or want to um you know encourage that are different than that so far um i think that again medium term long term uh who knows right like nobody can predict people moving to el salvador uh, <laughs> you know, who knows what's going to happen 10 years from now right but okay you know. so so from my takeaway from this is like you try to focus on the world the way it is at the moment and fix problems from out of that lens uh sort of uh or like that that's the sort of the just well, look i i think the the book uh and the book is very clear about the idea that like we have problems now we have the world the way it is now we have these tools now and, and what i invite the reader to do is imagine a world in which systems are different right so i think that um you know the monetary people general people on the street do not understand how closely tied the monetary system is to some of these like fundamental problems that we have in society or things that I would consider fundamental problems. Right. And as you say, like the difference between the political sides is like, where, where are we assigning blame for these problems? And the reality is more closely aligned with, okay, well, 
there's an underlying structure in place that allows these problems to happen. And right now, there there's no shortage of tools and resources that somebody wants to learn about Bitcoin who can take a look at the problem and say, oh, the big government is the problem. Bitcoin solves it. And I think that the book is an attempt to understand, hey, like as a liberal person, you think that these are the problems. So I'm going to speak to you in a way that resonates with you. But really underneath it is this more underlying systemic problem. And if we can imagine changing that, how might the world change? So if if you, you know, your description, I think is completely accurate. And I agree with it is that the two political sides right now think that the problem can be attributed to two different things, but that there's a connecting underlying thing that's causing those, those. There isn't a voice out there, or there are very few voices, I should say, out there who are taking the liberal, progressive view of what the problem is and connecting it back to the underlying structure. And that's what I think that's what the book is trying to do. And that's what my hope oh. is. So I don't know if that if that makes sense the way I've explained it. It does. Well, it, it sounds to me that you're not a progressive at all, but it's like a Trojan horse for progressives more more. <laughs> more I, but but I know, like <laughs> at at the moment, Bitcoin uh, is more appealing to to conservatives for various reasons, mainly that they're anti-state. But but the same case, like we, you could use almost the same arguments to liberals and progressives, saying that this is how we fix the big monopolies and the big conglomerates and corporations, right. because it's the same phenomena that well, that's underlying. And yeah. yeah. And, and, and just to further that just a little bit, right? Like it's not, if I'm in a room full of like liberal people, and I think that this is a huge misunderstanding from like people in the Bitcoin world, I think they'd like to imagine us, you know, sitting around and say, oh, isn't it great that the state is so big? Um, I love it when they tell me to cover my face up, right? It's not how we talk to each other, right? We're uh, actually pinpointing things that we don't like about the state, right? So they say, all right, well, you know, like, the militarization of our, of, uh, you know, of our police force, right? Like, you know, this is a very liberal idea. Like it also intersects very well with like libertarian ideas, like yeah. the, that we're going to go to war uh, in some foreign, you know, in, in nation and kill a lot of people. Like this is not something that, you know, this is a function of the state that liberals don't like. Um, they don't want us, you know, liberals don't want the government in our bedrooms and deciding who we can marry and who we can have sex with and all that stuff, right? There's, there's a lot, there's more than I think people realize, like liberal progressive people saying, hey, here's what I don't like about the state and also what I don't like about big corporations. <laughs> and I think that there's traction to be had there. I, I, that's why I'm bringing it up is that there, it's not as if, if I mentioned Bitcoin, the first reaction from a liberal person is like, oh, but I love the state. Like I love the government. You know what I mean? That's not how people really talk about it. No, no, I, I can totally relate to that because like oh, all the... Coming from Sweden, most of my old friends are more left-wing than I am. Let's put it right. diplomatically. <laughs> uh, and uh, they, but they all come from like no one really wants to to diminish their own rights. Like that's never the case. They they don't they don't want to to pay more or be obligated to do more themselves. It's just that the the distinction in my mind, like the distinction people people miss here is that the individual is the ultimate minority group so so if you're gonna if you're if you're gonna talk about rights of minorities you have mm-hmm. to start at the individual and like mm-hmm. individual property rights that's where everything stems from 
as so so that's how you protect people by by because in my mind uh, people think there's such a thing as a free lunch and they think sometimes there's a big movement they had a, a great conversation with Giacomo Soko about this uh, the other day how yeah. how uh, how people like often want politicians to even if they even if they realize that they can't really do anything not necessarily talking about masks here but you know <laughs> uh, so the, so they still think it's better that they do something so that they show that they do something and yeah. in most cases that's counterproductive in reality like f- for instance when donald trump who's seen by the world as the most capitalistic guy ever uh, when when there's when there's a, a pandemic and he gives a thousand dollars to each American by printing more money, what people don't see is that that's a total commie move. Like, oh he's, yeah. He's yeah, 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 stealing money from other right. countries to give right. for nothing to to his people. Very like disproportionately uh, distributed and everything. It's a very very centralized central planning. It's a planned economy move. And it's it, it has nothing to do with capitalism in my mind. Which, it's the opposite. It, it, well, it is, and and I think that um, any any thoughtful person would see that for what it is, right? Like it's what what is the real priority, right? Which is to, in that case, it's not capitalism isn't the priority, or even commie or communism isn't the priority. It's I'm going to do whatever I can to to make sure that the entire system doesn't implode. And so to get the votes. Well, <laughs> and that's, really a, that's one of the incentives. At least. The, vote, the votes is the incentive, but I think that the, the first layer is if people, if people stop spending money um, or then the, then the entire economy collapses and this whole sort of house of cards collapses and it's all built on debt and, and, and printed money that isn't backed by anything and all of that stuff, right? And when push comes to shove, even Republicans or people who are conservative or like ultra capitalists, are still going to, if they're in the position of power, be forced, their hand is forced to say, all right, well, I need to get money out there. I need to, even though it's regressive and it's not fair and it hurts other other nations that are using the dollar and don't get a voice and they don't get a, a stimulus check, all of that stuff. And I think there's a ton of unthoughtful people out there who just receive their check as if they're entitled to it. Um, but I think ultimately that the reason for that check is because the underlying the underlying monetary system that has been built around the world, which is all sort of dependent on the American monetary system and economy, it can't collapse. Because the minute like the cards start falling, they all fall. Th- this is also like one of the things that Bitcoin addresses is sort of this idea of consumption. Like we have built a system where when, uh, when everyone has to go home for two weeks and only buy the things that they need to buy and not the things that they want to or are incentivized by commercials to buy. And the minute everyone only buys the things that they really need, the entire, the entire system is on the verge of collapse and needs like in- injections of money to get people to spend money. That's not a... That is not a healthy system and certainly not healthy if you care about the environment um, and the idea of like, what are you consuming and what do you need to consume and what kind of steward are you being for, for the earth that we're living on? None of that jives well with, with sort of what people who consider themselves an environmentalist, none of that works well. And that Bitcoin is, is one possible solution to that. It's, it's something to think about, a, a, a tool that people should be considering. So, um, 
Yeah, there's a, I, I meandered there, so I'm sorry. No, no, no problem. I find it fascinating. I, I mean, I, I think Bitcoin is the antidote to consumerism simply because it's deflationary in the long run yeah. and absolutely scarce. So, so you, you are incentivized to come to the realization that that which you can do without you own. That's the, that's the like psychological truth, that yeah. this philosophical insight that we're getting closer to via this deflationary money. And it's inevitable, like uh, if, if you know that you, by, by, you know, postponing the Lambo today, you can afford two Lambos tomorrow, you will not buy Lambos. Like it's, it's, it's that easy, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, 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 to me, the, my mathematical brain loves to think of Bitcoin as one divided by current system. <laughs> because it's the inverse of it. Like it's yeah, not yeah, minus yeah. current system. It's one divided by current system. Sure. That, that's, sure. Uh, yeah. And the current system is growing, right? So yeah. we, have, we have a limiting behavior uh, towards infinity. Today's show is brought to you by our sponsors. First up, Orange Pill app. Stack friends who stack stats. Meet like-minded Bitcoiners near you and speed up hyper-Bitcoinization with Orange Pill app. Bitcoin isn't an online-only phenomenon, and Orange Pill app helps facilitate the social layer, connecting Bitcoiners in their local area. The best part is it maintains your privacy through the whole process, and since you have to subscribe to access the app, you know that everyone there is high signal and cares about Bitcoin. A great new feature is events. You can now create local events and meetups right from the Orange Pill app to help build your local community while maintaining the Bitcoin-only signal. Orange Pill app is available on iOS and Android. Download now. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, an open-source, non-custodial desktop Bitcoin wallet that is trustless, easy to use, and affordable. It has CoinJoin built in to facilitate your privacy. Every Bitcoin transaction leaves a clear footprint, but with Wasabi, you can make sure that others can't track your steps and threaten your sovereignty. Just send your coins to Wasabi, wait, and your coins will be private on the other end. It's open source, trustless by design, and non-custodial. You have full control over your keys. Check it out now at wasabiwallet.io. Double check that link. That's wasabiwallet.io. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about a meme while I still have it in my mind. Like, uh, there's a meme saying, I want gay married couples to be able to defend their cannabis plants with guns. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm not a homosexual. Uh, I don't use cannabis and I, I don't like guns at all. But I agree yeah. with all of that. Like, sure. I, that's, <laughs> that's like my political stance. Do whatever the fuck you want if, uh, as long as it doesn't hurt others. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think that uh, the meme, the meme speaks to me in a very deep way, even though I'm not, I'm not gay either. <laughs> I think that if you want to get into like the like the nitty gritty of it, right? The 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 answer of okay, well, do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt others. The pro, I think that the the untieable knot is like what who defines what hurts others and and how does that get defined and what are the externalities, right? So I think that's 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 a sticky wicket, right? This is why you should deep dive into the praxeology uh, rabbit hole and why 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 property rights is the only uh, logically consistent argument as an answer to that. Right. And I, and I won't be able to speak to the praxology argument, <laughs> but not yet. Oh, no, it's just a tip. <laughs> we can, well, we uh, will have another conversation after, you know, I've learned more about it. 
Um, you know, and, and I think that I, I, I want to argue that like, I want to argue against personal property rights, um, as sort of a logically consistent method of like solving, you know, issues or, or resolving conflicts or anything like that. I think sometimes in, in the Bitcoin world, we have very short conversations in which people claim individual property rights. It's all about the individual. Like that's the only thing that's ever made anything good in the world is, is the individual acting and their ability and their freedom to do so. I, I think it's I, pers- just personally, I think it's more subtle than that. I, I, I don't think that that's, it doesn't necessarily resonate with me. I think that there's, there's an interplay between individual and group like individual in society that is important to to recognize. I view it more of a continuum and I don't think the right answer is only on one side, um, either side. And that might be a disagreement that you and I have, but I think that, you it, know, that's, that's where I come is, down on it, it right now. It is a disagreement, but I'm not going to debate you about it. Uh, uh, not right now, anyway. Maybe after you read some yeah. Mises. There was another thing I wanted to pick your brain about. Like when we were talking about more or less authoritarian states, yeah. what's your view on like the, the, the truckers in Canada who got their bank accounts frozen? Because that's a neighboring country. I mean, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that happened to a certain, a group of a certain political viewpoint, but right. it might, might as well just have happened to, to the opposite. So let's say some, some, yeah. A right-wing version of Justin Trudeau, Trudeau was in uh, in power, and all of a sudden, all the LBTQ, whatever the abbreviation is these days, uh, got got their bank accounts frozen because they protested with violins or something. I, I mean, uh, it's basically the same thing. What, what's what's your view there? So I think my view is, and, and the way I address it, it like issues like this. I don't mention the trucker issue specifically by name in the book, but what what I do try to do is try. I think that there are a lot of people in my target audience who say, well, I don't need to worry about that because I'm on the, like the right side of history and my government wanted to do that to me and all of that stuff. Right. So I think that my goal in discussing issues like that is to understand that, um, you know, if it happens to Canadian truckers today, which is, is actually kind of easy to do, right? Like if you step outside of the Bitcoin world, like the Canadian trucker protests were not very popular in Canada. They were very popular among Bitcoiners. Yeah, sure. yeah, I know. Uh, uh, but, you know but, but they were like, seen oh, as Nazis by the, the vast majority uh, and, in, and, in and, Canada, and, I guess. And, and Okay, I'm, go- I'm going I'm to stop you quickly. I'm going to stop oh, go you ahead. quickly. This was because I'm from Canada originally. So, so both of you. Uh, so so on, this, on this one, it was its regional divide. This is the okay. big problem yeah. with Canada is that is that the the area of Canada that produces the oil and gas, which is how Canada's economy runs, to oversimplify a lot, but it's true. That was the area that this whole movement was really born. And there was a lot of support in those regions and not a lot of support in Ontario, Quebec, and uh, British Columbia. The the so the the liberal bastions, the the place that Justin Trudeau was elected from. And so the wrinkle here is it turned into a traditional conservative versus the the governing party thing. So it really wasn't a case of this is just anti-authoritarian. It was or, or sorry anti-COVID. It turned it turned entirely into that Justin Trudeau ended up. Silencing his political opponents, his direct political opponents. So, just just to 
kind of put that context into place, there was a lot of support for the truckers on people who didn't support Justin Trudeau. And the the media as well perpetuated that. The the CBC, the the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the equivalent of CNN, really. BBC. Yes, it's it's the state media. They they have been pro Justin Trudeau for a very long time, and so if you watched that type of news, the 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 view would have been that the truckers were were universally condemned, but that wasn't the case. So sure, continue. So, I'll, I'll, no, no, no. The, the the context is helpful, and and it's I think it's 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 sort of consistent with the the sort of the bigger point, right? We, well, the support comes regionally or within different groups of people who believe different things, right? Uh, but certainly, Justin, I, I think it might be fair to say Justin Trudeau wasn't making a political like risk by by taking a stance against the trucker protest, right? Like his support was coming from people who agreed with this, right? And and the people on Ontario in on Ontario who were listening to the horns honking and all of that stuff, right? They're, those are the people who were against it. The the, the point is that um, a lot of people in my target audience would never assume that something like that could happen to them. And I'm, what I'm trying to tell them is that it might, it could, right? Like, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, there's there's the wrong person, the, the quote unquote wrong person gets uh, elected or refuses to leave office or whatever you want to say, like anything could happen. And then all of a sudden you're, you're on the wrong side of what the government thinks is the right thing to do. So I think that that's absolutely a lesson that people in my target audience uh, probably don't think a lot about. Um, and and part of the book is trying to get them to think, all right, what happens when I need to make a transaction and it needs to be private and I don't want it censored by the government? That might be next year. That might be five years from now. It might be 15. What happens when I make want to make a, a donation to my favorite charity that I really care about right now? And then in 15 years, somebody isn't somebody wrong is in in power and looks back through transactions that weren't private um and realizes that now I'm I'm the enemy or something like that. So, you know, the the truckers in Canada to to my knowledge very peacefully uh, assembled um were engaged in civil disobedience were making things very um inconvenient for a lot of people which I think was their goal but they weren't being violent they were assembling in 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 ways that were peaceful. Um, to make their point. And, and I don't, you know, me and, and the people in my target audience might not necessarily agree with their point, but I think that they agree with their ability to do so. And then you have to be able to look at the mirror of that and say, all right, well, what are you, what do you care about? And what might be taken away if uh, you don't have money that works in, in the way that money is supposed to work? So, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And like a very, very good thing to remind people about that, that regardless of your political leaning, if you give more power to politicians and the government switch, switches sides, all of a sudden you're the enemy. So um, I think that's much more dangerous than people think. I'm reading a book at the moment called The White Pill about the Soviet Union and what, what went on there and how fast a, a society can deteriorate into something where, where you just you know want to call out your fellow man. We could see a... a uh, some of that during the pandemic, how people were very, very aggressive against one another uh, when they when they saw their fellow man not following the rules, and you know, in the end of it, following the rules became more and more of a virtue signaling me- mechanism. Being able to adapt to the more and more absurd rules becomes something of virtue, and that's a very, very dangerous path. Then again, 
I love that the the world sort of woke up from the the so-called pandemic instantly and just uh, let's stop this bullshit now and just yes uh, i mean it just disappeared yeah. and it's, well, it's even scary because because it's like people forgot what what politicians did to to us at this point but still it's better than us keeping this charade up and and putting masks on our kids when they go to school it's just absurd i i you know and again like uh you know there's there's pieces of that i i definitely agree with and, and align with and then there's yeah, pieces- yeah. It might not, which is fine. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be like a COVID debate, but I do think that the, uh, like to, to, I think to the original point, which is the, the line between sort of a well-functioning society and one in which we all turn on each other to get what we need or to not get in trouble is a very thin line. Um, it is. And, and I think mm-hmm. that, um, in, in many ways, society, like civilized society is a very nice charade to have. Um, if everybody, you know, when people have enough food and they have enough water and they have enough medicine, then we can all act very nice to one another within reason. Um, but when people start running out of toilet paper and things get ugly. So, you know, it's like, it becomes a different story. It's, Um, it's more fragile than people think it is. Um, Yeah. And I, I am fully on board with that. And I've, you know, I try to tell people this often. If they listen to me, that yeah. our society and our civilization that we have is is more fragile than, than we think. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So uh, I I've loved this discussion as well, and how you've built up all these points. So I think the main thing I, I'd like to hear both your view and whatever is in the book on a couple of specific points that I've been having similar issues of of talking to people I know, and maybe it's not exactly like I don't have answers for them, but I'd love to be able to explain them better and hear your thoughts on it. So the the two issues are the kind of the environmental side of things and also uh, inflationary uh, economies uh, being uh, the the view that inflation is is required for economies to to function. So do you you address these topics in the book and can you explain probably one at a time? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, The answer is yes. Both both show up in the book. I think that the the chapter on environment is the longest um, chapter, and it's also, I think, the most important for the target audience. And the reason that it's the longest chapter is that it's not an easy... Uh, yeah, what we're doing is we're in the Bitcoin community, when we're trying to go up against like the environmental FUD, is that we're trying to battle two-sentence sound bites with actually intricate understanding of like, how energy is created, consumed, transported, used, like all of that stuff, right? I, I think that's the real challenge, right? Is to get, and so what I try to do in the book is break down the idea that like the the use of electricity is uh, is not necessarily bad in and of itself. Uh, if you care about the environment, what you do is you, you should be caring about how that energy is produced and the key message is that Bitcoin is a tool that allows the energy that uh, is being generated uh, at the site of generation to be more green and more efficient, more sustainable. All of the things that the people you know on the left really want, Bitcoin allows that to happen and not to demonize sort of, this is how we're using the electricity um, and that's bad and that's wasteful. The other argument in that, in that line is, all right, well, is it really wasteful? What are we getting by using that energy? And of course, the argument is throughout the whole book that these are all the benefits 
of Bitcoin um, and why using the energy uh, in the way that we do is very important. Um, and so I think that the ability to understand if you want renewables or if you want more renewable energy to be uh, produced in some region, like the, here are the roadblocks for that to happen. And I don't think people understand, oh, I don't, I just don't set up like a bunch of solar panels and then the world is fine, right? There are actual like limitations and, uh, you know, difficulties in place about how does that money get, or how does that energy get generated on site? How does it get distributed to people who need it? How is it monetized in a way that makes sense and incentivize people to actually put in the infrastructure? All of that is very complicated conversation, but fundamental to understanding the relationship that Bitcoin has with energy, um, energy conversion, uh, or however you want to think about it. Um, so I, I think that those are very nuanced arguments I out, you know, lay out in the book. But I think that the ultimately, if you wanted to boil it down to a soundbite, is don't focus on how energy is being used by the consumer. Focus on how it's being generated. And if you want it generated in a way that fits your narrative a little bit better, Bitcoin helps with that. And then outline all of the reasons why that happens, you know, things like stabilizing the grid, being able to respond to intermittent, uh, you know, energy sources, being able to overbuild, uh, monetize energy infrastructure to overbuild the solar or the wind that you want to have happen. All of those things are critically important and it can't happen without proof of word. Uh, you know, like it just doesn't, the Bitcoin protocol fundamentally allows it uh, uniquely positioned to to respond to all of these issues that we have in in sort of the energy sector uh in ways that other industries other technology other tools don't we don't have that right now so i think that's the energy piece um it's it's not maybe it's a meandering answer but it's it's a very complicated issue right like if, if you're going in somebody who thinks oh i use energy and i'm bad <laughs> which a lot of people have been brainwashed into that thinking. Yeah. Like, I use energy, then I'm bad. If you use energy, then you're bad. Uh, it's way more complicated than that. And it's hard to convince somebody away from that, but it's yeah. it's doable. You just have to work hard at it. Yeah. And it's uh, always, people always leave out the alternative cost. Like right now we have uh, huge uh, ships with containers on them taking plastic crap from China to the rest of the world on a daily basis, like for, yep. for what? And, and that's the thing. If we want to fix the environment, we need to fix consumption. So like uh, in my view, like this, this way of using energy is the absolute purest way there is and, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, because it doesn't misallocate resources, which all other monetary systems do inevitably because they're inflationary. So you always have a misallocation of resources in the end. Uh, and, uh, and that's quite a mental hurdle for people to get over. And also right. this, I love that to take this one step further, this, uh, suspension mechanism thought that you, you can build, you can now, wh whenever a wind farm or a solar farm overproduces, you can connect them to a Bitcoin mining rig and they can, and you can monetize them that way, monetize you, but you can flip that and say that what if we build a, a giant wind farm that mines Bitcoin as its primary thing? And then whenever there's a, a shortage, uh, uh, then we, then we send the electricity to, to the, uh, to the, to the society. Houses? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. you could, and then you have a very, very stable system also uh, all of a sudden. 
No, I, I think that that's, that's an intriguing idea. Um, yeah. I think it might be a bridge too far for my audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not you medium know, it, term uh, or yeah, short yeah, yeah. term. It's yeah. long term. But, but that's, that's what I write. I write long term. I, I changed my mind on nuclear so many times because yeah. I realized that nuclear makes the most sense from a physics perspective by far. Like uh, uh, a liter of plutonium is equivalent to, to, to 50,000 barrels of oil, uh, 5,000 barrels of oil. Yeah, 5,000 it is. Yeah. yeah, I should get my numbers right. But something around the 5,000, it's, it's enormously powerful and efficient. Sure. But, but the thing that isn't efficient, efficient is, is human action and politics. Because in order to build one, that's, uh, it, you need to plan it for like, it needs to be there and be running for 50 years. And right. no, no political system has been stable for 50 years. They always fuck it up and put some clown on right. top that's, that turns, turns the reactors off. And it's not, right. it's not like you can just reset them and start them again. Now you need to make, build a whole new reactor. And it's, so it's very weird. And therefore, maybe renewables is the shit. And uh, with Bitcoin, when it, when it can be actually profitable to build them, Without subsidies, because that, I, I think that's the thing. If there are subsidies, it's not a long-term solution. It's right. a short-term solution. And it's bound to fail as soon as you get some other guy on top in politics. So, right. so but if it's actually profitable, yes, then we have a, uh, a real shot at, at changing how we, how we look at energy, how we consume energy, how we, how we provide ourselves with it and a much more stable system in just a couple of hundred years and we'll solve it all. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, I, I agree, right? And it, I think that to the point that we've been making a couple of times, like that long-term thinking is something that doesn't exist in the political system right now. Uh, but maybe the hope is no. that. And I think that's a feature, not a bug of the political system. Because we, we, oh. we, 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 all politicians are incentivized to think four years ahead and nothing more. Like which, that, which is a which is a bug for everybody else, right? It, it is, and and yeah, it's yeah. a yeah. We had uh, Prince Philip of Serbia on making very strong arguments for monarchies uh, making a con comeback because of this. Okay, you might get Geoffrey Baratheon at some time at some at some point, and that's bad for that generation. But spend but over millennia, that might even be better because they have an incentive to think more long term. It's very fascinating <laughs> to think about it anyway. Yeah. And I think the, the other question was about the inflationary, like the, you know, the, the money supply needs to inflate in order for the economy to grow. Right. And the answer is I do speak about this in the book. In fact, I relay a, an anecdote about, you know, when I first started getting into Bitcoin, I sort of put out a call to any of my colleagues that would listen and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I would love to talk to you about Bitcoin. Can we have lunch together? You know, like, you know, I, I want to pick your brain, uh, find out what I'm missing, find out what you know, find out what I can teach you, that kind of stuff, right? Let's just have lunch together. And nobody took me up on it. Finally, somebody did. So I have somebody I work with who um, teaches math like me, but they also teach economics. And we sat down together. We had like a very lovely lunch where we talked about Bitcoin. And I sort of laid out, I said, actually, I said to him like, hey, I want you to convince me I'm wrong about Bitcoin. Like, that's what I want you to do. Like, here's what I understand to be true. Tell me what I'm missing. Tell me what I'm wrong about. Um, and we went through the whole lunch and, and he agreed with 99% of the things that I said. Yeah, this is better. It's more sound. Like, this is like more stable. Like, this is all good. 
Um, but the, and he said, like, the only problem is that it's deflationary and that's going to cause a problem. And, and I think that he is in this old mindset of, you know, teaching some bastardized version of Keynesian economics as getting taught in schools right now. Um, yes. that's actually like the, the truth. Um, but the, and I try to out, like lay out in my book, the ways in which like, this is a myth, like the need for this inflationary monetary supply to, to create growth is a myth, right? We should be looking for technology to make things cheaper and more efficient and more abundant for, for all people on the planet, not just Americans, but for everybody. Um, and having a deflationary money supply ties in with that. So you don't have some central bank trying to fight against like the, the general trend of, uh, you know, deflation from technology. You know, I reference uh, Jeff Booth, uh, you know, in that in that argument. And really, the goal should be not to have a growing economy, like per se, just on the name of it, like, hey, our economy is growing. But when the economy grows, we see what happens is like the benefits, uh, like the improvements of our innovation and our technology and like what we're producing and what we're inventing gets actually um reflected in that way instead of just like stock prices going up for very few people like uh society benefits from like innovation and things like that and that can happen in um you know in a monetary system that has a deflationary you know money supply that can that can happen and just sort of bursting the bubble on this this essential myth that you know we need it to grow really what we need is for the money supply to grow uh, so we can say that we're growing in nominal terms, but in adjusted for inflation, it doesn't matter if we're growing or not. Only in you know nominal terms are we growing to help support the debt that the government's taking on and all of our citizens have taken on because otherwise without that growth, which is just sort of like window dressing growth, um, the whole house of cards collapses by, you know, you send out stimulus checks and why you need uh, corporations to keep getting bigger and to show profits every quarter and why we think about it in such short terms, right? Like that's what's really needed, right? Like, we, and we teach kids in school, you need a inflation to have growth, but uh, what kind of growth are we seeing? Who's benefiting from that growth? And uh, in reality, it, you know, at least in my view, it just um, supporting this unstable system and, uh, you know, it's making it worse. Uh, the, the longer it goes on, the worse it gets. Um, and the more- yeah you know, inter intervention is needed and things like that. So, yeah, you say we, we teach our kids in school and uh, like the follow-up questions is who's paying for the school and what's the relationship with the money printer? <laughs> and and then when you see it in that light, it all makes sense after a while. Like, uh, it sounds a bit conspiratory, but but really, like we're told Keynesianism because governments love Keynesianism. Uh, there's one Ludwig von Mises quote that uh, I'd love to share. He said one positive thing about Karl Marx, and that was, at least he's not a Keynesian. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, in, in, in the terms, like, uh, like what's happening now in, in these, you know, in, in the Central Bank of the United States is not, and in, in the, in the, in the government of the United States is not involved in like Keynesian economics where if there's an economic downturn, the government interjects money and spends money, you know, and runs at a deficit. And then when there's a booming economy, we dial everything back and we increase taxes and we reduce our spending. That's not what's happening, right? Now that's like spending all the time. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what what happens is it got turned into like this political tool to say, well, we're allowed to just run the money printer all the time. We don't need to increase your taxes. We get to spend more. Um, and it doesn't ha- matter if it's boom time or bust time. We're just going to keep doing this until something breaks. And then when it breaks, we're going to overreact. Like that's not strictly speaking like Keynesian stuff. Right? Well, not- well, it's it's <laughs> according to Keynes, that shouldn't happen. But it's sort of like uh, other flawed economic ideas, I, I think it is inevitable that that will play out in that way if you have a money printer at all. You can't get around that. So and, so, and so, so so I agree with you. And it's just, it's about the incentives, right? Like Yeah, the, the monetary insist- incentives are stronger than the political ones to, to the ones running this show. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so, because- I mean, I just think maybe it would help if we had a different name for it. So people that are in my target audience. Yeah, there is a better name. Count- I- counterfeiting. That's that's the better name because that's what it is. They're yeah. all scammers. We've had inflation as a policy for a thousand years, and it's it's all based on scams. Yeah. It's it's all fraud, basically. And we're taught this. Like the example I always give with the um, uh, why deflation is not bad. It's it's computer hardware and like electronics. The last fifty years that's been deflationary to an absurd level, and those companies are thriving. Like, <laughs> it's been a right. very health, healthy global market, like driving prices down so that everyone on earth can afford a fantastic machine like James Bond's wet dream 50 years ago. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just marvelous. And so this, this whole, the thing deflation does, it's, it substitutes quality for quant- quantity. It's like, you get right. quantity instead of quality. And yeah. And, and but then you get a shitty society in the end because everything is short term. So that, right. it, yeah. So that's and, what and, it does. In order to in order to uphold all of that inflation, what you need is people buying more and more shit that they don't yeah. need. And and what happens is you just make stuff that breaks, so they have to keep buying it. And all right, like this is so like the substitute for quality. Then like you know if people are deciding, am I going to spend my Bitcoin on a new phone? Like, I'm going to pick one that's not going to be obsoleted intentionally in two years. I'm going to pick something that makes more sense, right? So, like, that's the, yeah, that's aspiration, right? Is that we're actually buy things and companies are going to make things that don't break um, just to make us buy more, just so that it can, like, the economy can grow, just so that our debt bubble doesn't explode on us, right? I think that's the hope that we can get to that point. I think a good angle to to, to uh, when arguing with left wingers about inflation is that it is a hidden tax and that mm-hmm. it affects the poor the most, yes. and poor the poor and the middle class they they're paying for it. Like, yep. And yeah. and I could and I the go in great detail yeah. in the book about how the the inflation is really hurting pretty much everybody except for those at the very top, right? Um, and we don't yeah. notice it because. You know, like the, or, the word insidious gets thrown around a lot, but it's the best word for it, right? Like you just don't feel no, it. I think it's no. normal. Um, and everybody, you know, just, you remember being a kid and then your grandparents would complain about how much candy bars cost or something. You're like, oh, well, that's just something old people complain about. <laughs> but it's really like, it's actually like built into the system. Like it's a problem that like, you used to be able to buy a whole candy bar for a penny and now I have to pay a dollar fifty or something, right? That's a problem. It's not just oh I'm yeah. being a grumpy old man. You know? Are you are you familiar with the site WTF happened in nineteen seventy one dot com? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I am. Yeah. Uh, I think that's very, very telling. And like those 
they they picked really really you know good graphs to to enlighten people about the problem yeah and i think um you know some of the issues that show up on that site um are absolutely like closely tied with monetary policy like hard money assets like you know like having a gold standard or gold peg and then removing it hugely important and i don't think people think about that um on in their day-to-day i I just don't people outside of the people listening to this podcast you know like i I don't think uh, normies out there are you know who are essentially that's my target audience i just want them to be thinking about that in a more deep way so yeah, excellent. Uh, speaking of this uh, boom and bust cycles and stuff, you know, back in t- 2008 with the Lehman Brothers crash and the, all all that, uh, the what basically happened was that Obama and Bush they had the same opinion on what to do about the problem. Oh yeah, and it's just pushing the can can down the road, or as I prefer, like the snowball down the hill because the snowball gets bigger and bigger. Because that's what happened. They just bailed everyone out. And postpone the problem, and you, you get an inevitable bigger crash at some point in the future. But they don't lose face. So, right. so regardless of what, if you voted blue or red, made absolutely no difference. Right, and they had to collude to get to that uh, decision, and they they did. And right. no one was against it in the political sphere. And this is why I detest politicians so much because, like. <laughs> There, there is no choice. Yeah. I mean, when faced with losing face, or they're always going to cop out and and try to look good. Uh, well, and this is it's not very much different from like the the thousand dollar check I got from Trump versus the thousand dollar check I got from Biden, right? Like, there's a it's 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 a similar thing, right? Like when faced with the entire system collapsing. You strip away the red and the blue, and you start making decisions that um, are going to, you know, be in your best interest because that's what you're incentivized to do, right? And so, the fact that you know Obama and Bush are of the same mind about this particular thing, and they disagree about everything else, is very telling, right? And and the same thing with Trump and Biden. Uh, if and I think that's where the the signal is to the noise, which is figure out what these two people agree about. And like that might be a problem for you, the voter, right? And yeah, I just want to clarify for your listeners, like I don't have any like uh there's no love loss for me and politicians or the political class. Like my I'm speaking to people who vote and people who are in society and consider themselves like left wing or progressive or liberal. I'm certainly um, you know, I, I shouldn't have any love for like the elected leaders that we have that we currently have. I no, no. about that. Yeah. <laughs> I I I to be honest, I think most people don't like they. They just don't realize that they're. Uh, I, I or just don't realize. I mean, they vote for something, what they think is the least worst option. Uh, that's probably true for most people. I mean, if it's the madman or the senile man, I. I mean, it's just two shades of. Uh, doesn't really matter. But, and I, I. But I think that the lesson to be learned is to watch what they do and not what. Not what they say. Like, look at look at their actions rather than their uh, the, their listening to the words, because they 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 are way more telling. And it, and it gets it gets tricky for like a low information person who doesn't spend their day in day out thinking about politics. Because you have somebody out there who does. You know, if you all right, look at their actions, not their words. 
there's somebody out there like your flavor of politician, like, oh, this guy's blue and he's going to do like these little things that I think are, are good. Or if it's somebody who's on the red side, they're going to do little things that are good. That's enough to just convince some people, but like the big overarching like systems that they're putting in place um, get less attention. And, you know, but to your point earlier, like the crazy thing is that they agree on those sometimes. It's all the other little things that they get, that they get us fighting about uh, to distract us from. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Pay, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain and so on. <laughs> it's funny. I just came to... Th- think about do you know why because i don't uh, any one of you know why the colors are flipped in in the u.s as to everywhere else i mean in the u.s the right wing is red and the left wing is blue right but yeah in europe it's the other way around in every country i do know that Uh, actually (laughs) good yeah um it happened in the year 2000 uh when it was gore versus bush um the if if you go back to the footage and and people might need to fact check me on this a little bit, but that there was a close election between Gore versus Bush, uh-huh. um, and I think it was NBC had decided somewhat arbitrarily that it was going to be red for Bush and blue for Gore, and uh, and the other networks probably had different color systems because there was no standard okay. color system. So there was no no such thing as a red state before the two thousands. I don't, not as a, as a consensus unified vision of what Republican meant. All right. Tim, Tim so Ruster. Relatively recent. Huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. So Tim Ruster, uh, in an interview as they're going through the, all of the debate about Florida and like mm-hmm. who won and the recount and all of that kept referring to blue states and red states and saying like, well, if these red states stay red and these blue states stay blue and it wasn't, it had nothing to do with like what we think of as red states and blue states literally the colors that NBC chose that year for the election <laughs> in history. That's interesting. Um, you know, they have like green and orange or whatever, you know, different colors. Um, so yeah. I think it stems from that. That's my that's my memory of it happening and, and yeah. people think about it since. Yeah, another another thing that fascinates me when it comes to political power, uh, colors is if you mix green and red, you get brown. <laughs> but it makes more sense in a European uh, yeah, context. It, yeah. There's something philosophical about the political backlash or something that or pendulum effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> too, yeah, too much red and green, and you get a pendulum effect, and you get brown on the other side. Just <laughs> brown is smeared <laughs> everywhere, right? Yeah. As the pendulum swings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The show is also sponsored and produced by Consensus Network, the first Bitcoin-only publishing house. Consensus specializes in translations of Bitcoin books and also publishes original titles in English and many other languages. Check out bitcoinbook.shop or consensus.network to see everything Consensus has to offer. We're also always looking for new contributors. Whether you have a book you want to publish, you want to help translate books into your native language, or you have some other way you want to get involved. So if you want to help spread the Bitcoin message, reach out to us by Twitter or email. Details are in the show notes. And finally, you can check out knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut, including some great Everything Divided by 21 Million merch and the Infinity Red Limited Edition wine. That's knutsvonholm.com for everything Knut. Anyway, uh, Jason, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I have some finishing words. and Those are, you can't always do right, but you can always do what's left. (laughs) Like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Luke, do you have anything else to 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 ask or anything to add uh, before we close this out? 
No, this has been great. I, I think, uh, Jason, in, in that case, I think we would uh, be great if you can just share uh, where people can connect with you and how to get the book. And uh, I'm actually personally interested as well. Is it going to be out on Audible, that sort of thing? So yeah, yeah. All the details, please. Yep. So uh, the details, if you want to follow me or or progress on the book, it's um, there's a website uh, bitcoinprogressive.com. So that's yeah. the place where people should go and, and sort of research the book. The book will be out this spring. So uh, it's being published by uh, the good people at Bitcoin Magazine. And we are actually working very hard to make sure that it's out for the conference in Miami in May. So it's right now in this moment, it seems like that's going to happen. Um, so uh, the best place to maybe buy it is in Miami, so you can see me in person and I can sign it for you. But if you don't, uh, then you can go to my website and there'll be a link to, to purchase it once it's out in May, um, possibly June, if things don't work out, but hopefully they do. Um, I'm also on Twitter at CJasonMayor uh, uh, on Twitter. And so that's the best place to, to do it. It's going to be released um, as an, an ebook, an audio version after the paperback comes out and is available for everybody. Um, so if you're more of a listener, then that's going to happen, um, you know, in short order, um, you know, and the publisher will take care of all of that. So I'm, I'm very excited because that's how I consume most of my books, actually, is I, I listen to them while I'm doing the dishes. That's, yeah. that's same here. Same here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I drive. That's when I listen the most. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I have to find a time when I'm driving alone, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. You know, yeah. but yeah, so, so that's, that's how you can follow me and, and get information about the book. And it, it's, you know, before you know it, uh, you know, I'll be sitting at a, at a desk in Miami, hopefully signing some of these things for people listening. So, yeah. Yeah. I hope to see you. Hope yeah, you'll you'll be in you'll be in Miami. Knut will be in Miami. Yeah, it, lo it looks like I'm going to Miami. They already made an ad video for it, so, so I guess I'm I saw going. that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, so looking forward to meeting you there and hopefully exchanging books. Then I hope my Fraxiology book is out uh, at at that date. Oh, so good, can good. Just, yeah, I have a lot more <laughs> learning to do, and we have a different conversation next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should have a, a a more deep diving conversation. But I I love this uh, uh, course, like. Uh, getting more people to realize uh, how important this tool is for, for their personal liberties yeah. and their personal to protect their own rights. Uh, it's, it's crucial for people to understand it. And I love that you're trying to explain it to a group uh, whom it doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, come that easily to. So it's, it's a very oh, yeah. noble cause. Uh, Thank you. So good luck with everything. Thank and, you very much. I, I appreciate it. And I, I love this conversation. <laughs> Me too. It's great. Yes. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right. Nice to hear it. Yep. I think that's a good place to leave it. So uh, thanks again, uh, Jason Meyer. And uh, best of luck. And uh, welcome back on any time after uh, some uh, absorption of more information, I guess. And uh, yeah, good luck with the, the book launch. And uh, hope to see you soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for listening.